I like the word grit because it exemplifies the one thing that I, I talk to my leaders about. It exemplifies an attitude, right? When you think about grit, you think about an attitude. It's kind of a strength of character. And I'm a guy, I'm five foot three, right? So I don't come in the room and command presence. And, you know, you're born with a set of limitations physically, from an aptitude perspective, all kinds of things. You know, you're either God-given talent or challenged in a variety of areas. But there's one thing, one thing that is yours and yours alone. And that is your attitude. So own it. Hi, I'm Jubin business development and go-to-market operating partner at Kleiner Perkins. And I'm really excited to bring you this episode of Go-To-Market Grit, a show that interviews amazingly successful sales and go-to-market leaders and explores how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build world-class teams. And now onto this episode. As a quick disclaimer before we get going, Jay is no longer at New Relic. You'll hear him mention that a few times. He has since moved on to join UiPath. Jay, welcome to the show. It's fantastic to be here. Thanks for having me. So I like to get these things started by reading my guests' backgrounds back to them. And please fill in the blanks for anything that I miss. Is that just to let us know how old we are? (laughs) It's to date you. That's exactly right. It's to go through quite illustrious careers in the most efficient way possible for folks that typically don't like to talk about themselves. For those listening in, I graduated college at 12 years old, so go ahead. Degree from Bentley University in economics and finance. You then went to Accenture and was a senior manager there for about six years. Went to PeopleSoft and spent a year as a manager of strategic service sales, then became the director of Global Technology Alliances. And it looks like you spent about two years doing that. You then went to EMC, where you had what looks like a Herculean run, about 15 years. 21 years. 21 years, that's right. And I thought maybe the last five was at Dell formally or kind of same thing, I don't know. So Dell acquired EMC? Yeah, yeah. So it was just a transition from working for EMC to now Dell EMC, which eventually became Dell Technologies. So really one and the same, just got a lot bigger, went from about 30,000 employees to 155,000. Perfect. So at EMC, you're the divisional partner manager for three years, technology solutions director for a year, GM of the Americas as a sales leader for EMC Consulting for almost six years. Then you became the AVP of sales, spent five years doing that, COO of Americas Sales and Customer Operations for two years, then SVP of Americas Services for two years, assuming that's when Dell then came in for the acquisition. And you were the SVP of Alliances and Global Sales at Dell Technologies for five years post-EMC. Did I get all that right? You did. It was uh, right at the transition I moved. I had just taken the Alliances role at EMC. Dell made the announcement to acquire. And then I transitioned from running Alliances for EMC just to add EMC into a broader role doing it for all the Dell Technologies over the last four plus years, I guess, which seems crazy to think about that whole thing in a nutshell in 30 seconds. There's your whole life in 30 seconds, right? Exactly. And I want to talk about the EMC stuff for a while. But now, as of what, four months ago, you are the EVP and Chief Customer Officer at New Relic. I did. I joined May 4th. Have you been in the office yet? Never been to the office. And the only person I've met is my boss who interviewed me. Yeah. Incredible experience. That's crazy. Amazing background. 
I want to talk about a lot of things. I want to talk about the role of the chief customer officer. I'm particularly excited to have you on the show because we typically have chief revenue officers on the show. And in a lot of cases, customer success or post sales falls under the chief revenue officer's umbrella. So I'm really excited to kind of hear your perspective on the nuances, subtleties, differences, and similarities. Before I dive in, tell me more about that run at EMC. I mean, for those that don't know, EMC's just kind of a culture of just spitting out extremely excellent operators on the go-to-market side. Very disciplined, very customer-oriented. I don't know. Tell me more about that. You're right. And I think it's got quite an interesting culture and reputation, and a lot of it's accurate. I pride myself on coming through the EMC machine and growing up there because it both hardens you but opens your aperture to think about customer first. One of the things I think EMC does as well as any company is they have an attitude around the customer's always right. And it started for me early in my career. So it was ingrained in everything I did, every project I ran, every position I had. It was always thinking, you know, from the customer back, how are we going to do things to enable, facilitate, and drive engagement with the customer? And that was that was fantastic. I think it's interesting, you know, I was very much an anomaly in the EMC legends ranks of people who have survived, you know, over time, if you will. I mean, you traditionally come in as a sales rep. You do well as a sales rep, you accelerate, you become a sales manager, and then you do well as a sales manager, and then you're a second level sales manager, and you go and you go, and that's the very traditional, if not only path that was known. I came in from a very different angle. So I had a strong background in consulting and as a byproduct of consulting solution selling, which today you would say is pretty straightforward. Everybody talks about it. Everybody does value-based selling, but it wasn't so rampant back in the dark ages when I started at EMC. And so I was going on a lot of customer calls and I'd be the one asking all the questions, like doing all the discovery, you know, literally asking why five times to try to understand why a customer was going to do something. And lo and behold, you know, you ask why five times and you eventually get to the heart of the business challenge that they're trying to solve for. And it created a really different dynamic and different conversation for us. And like anything else, word spread. So I was going on more sales calls, then more sales calls. And then you fast forward to a point in time where for a variety of life events, I wanted to get off the road because I was flying all around the country and had an opportunity to run sales in Northern California. And I'd never carried a bag, never been a direct sales rep. And so I was kind of breaking the mold and coming in to run our largest accounts in Northern California. And the thought process at the time by the leader who I'm still close friends with was, look, you know how to ask better questions than everybody else. And for whatever reason, it works because you're in the executive suite with all the CIOs and they want to talk to you, but they don't want to talk to the rest of us. So go do what you do in a sales territory and train the rest of the teams on how to do what you do. And it ended up working out, ended up having a great run in Northern California. And then the company said, let's scale what you're doing there and take it across the Americas. And that kind of led from one thing to another and led me to move from California to Boston and take on the chief operating officer role for the Americas. So super fun, but again, a very non-traditional path. And I think what I'm most proud about, I had so many different jobs, right? Services, consulting, sales, and then indirect. And it gives you a really good appreciation, I think, for two different things that I hold near and dear to me. One, it gives you a great appreciation for your internal employees because EMC is a very hard culture. And so make no mistake, when you're the sales person, you run the show. But when I was able to sit in all the ancillary seats around that table as an indirect person, a services person, a support person, and understood the value I provided, I had a completely different perspective when I became a sales leader on the value all those folks can contribute. And we operated 
in such a model. And I think that was incredibly useful for me to become the best leader I could be. But then you had a different appreciation for the customer too, because you saw through a different lens what they were trying to do, why they were trying to do it, and how it, they connected to different facets of your own company. So again, it gave you a different lens through the customer's eyes on how they engaged with EMC, the company. So when I married those two things together, I think that was the, if I had to say what was the biggest advantage I had coming from a non-traditional sales background and being able to crack into the, the code at EMC, I think that was probably it. So when you went to run the global accounts in kind of Northern California, was that you as an individual contributor or were you managing a team doing that? I had a team of eight global account managers. So we ran the largest entities in the West from a global's perspective. And when you came in there and they said, all right, this guy, Jay, he's never carried a bag before. He has no idea what that means, but he's your boss now. Exactly. What was that feeling like? And maybe I'll be really specific. How did you earn the respect of the group when they feel like, geez, this guy probably doesn't even know the trials of what we have to do in our job. I don't know. Maybe there's another reason why, but yeah, I'd love to hear more. You said it well. I mean, I think that's exactly what happened. Now, I knew some of the folks just because I lived in the Bay Area. So some of them had used me previously on sales calls, but then the wake up the next day and have this specialty consulting thingy guy be your boss is a very different dynamic, right? So there's a couple of things I did, and I still do this today as best I can. You know, I'm a big believer in the Covey principle about seek first to understand, right? So I definitely took 90 days to really understand what was happening, what we were doing, what we were not doing, what we're doing well, what we should be doing. And I did that by actually just immersing myself in the business. So the good news is you only have eight sales reps. The harder piece is they had really big accounts, right? These are multinational global entities. I went on anywhere from three to five sales calls a day, every day for 90 days. So I actually just went on every call with my teams. I listened, I took notes, I understood the challenges, I understood the opportunities. And then as I got more comfortable with something that I believed would be valuable, I started providing a lot of coaching and a lot of feedback after hours, before hours, right? Not during the sales call, but here's what I'm thinking about. Here's what I've heard in the previous sessions. Here's some things I think we should consider. And the more I did that, the more microphone time the sales teams wanted me to have, the more I started to walk the walk. And then I told them that we were going to change the game inside every one of these global accounts with a principle that I'm using today, which is we've got to measure value, right? They're spending 10, 20, 30, 50. One of the accounts was spending $75 million a year with us, but we had never determined the value we provided them. So I created a concept that we used, which was a value scorecard, which was incredibly uncomfortable for salespeople, but it was something that was second nature to me in consulting, because when you sell consulting, you're just selling people. So you have to constantly evaluate the value you deliver. Otherwise, you're not going to get the next statement of work. In the sales business, in the hardware software business, we didn't do that. So we started doing that. And it became an incredibly powerful tool. And what I told the team is, I said, this may be uncomfortable at first, but I'm going to do it. I'll take the lead. Put me in front of all of your CIOs and I'll have that conversation. And then as a trickle-down impact, it'll expand the aperture for us inside these accounts the relevancy for us within these customers and the value we deliver to them. And through actually, you know, walking that walk and then talking that talk, that's how I earned the respect. The three or five sales calls, you know, a day that I was doing early where I had to say, please take me on the call. It became the opposite, which is I can only do this many sales calls. I'm going to have to start saying no, where it became pervasive. Everybody wanted a piece of the action. So that's how I did it. Makes sense. So you said the first 90 days, you just listened, jumped on customer calls. 
Have you basically done that same thing at New Relic? Do you have that same mindset or approach as you kind of go into every new environment? I've had that same mindset and approach in every job I did. When I took over Global Alliances at Dell, I did the exact same thing. And then I re-architected the entire organization from the ground up after 90 days because it needed to be done. The difference at New Relic, while I intended to apply that same principle, I wasn't afforded the time or luxury to go do it. I stepped into the company at a point in time where we had a significant pivot. We were making it's a much more agile company. We were launching a brand new product, brand new pricing, brand new packaging, brand new company, to be honest, in July. So as opposed to being able to take the 90 days to really understand all the team, how we were structured, where I could optimize, where I could find efficiencies, it was all about what can I do and what do we need to do to get the product launched in an effective manner and ensure that our customers are ready, they're trained, enabled, our sales teams are trained and enabled, and my CS team is ready to handle this massive launch. So I didn't get that luxury like I would have liked to. I'm actually stepping back now and doing some of that now that we've launched, to be honest with you. That makes sense. Random question. How many chief customer officers do you know? What I mean by that is, is that a common role that I'm naive to? Or is that something that is becoming more and more prevalent? And I think maybe when you answer the question, if you could contextualize where in the organization that you sit, who you report to, what your responsibilities look like, that'd be super helpful for the audience. Yeah, I would tell you, I would say that I think chief customer officer roles are now the norm, not the corner case. If you go to most SaaS companies, software companies, you're going to find a chief customer officer. I was just on the phone with my peer at Salesforce, their chief customer officer. I've done the same thing with ServiceNow. I did the same thing with Rackspace. I mean, I can go on and on the list where they have them. In fact, a lot of what you would call non-tech companies are now starting to spin up chief customer officers, companies that make software and have end user customers. They're creating a chief customer officer to be able to understand that customer intimacy and that customer experience. So I would say, yes, I know quite a few. And I think it is, you know, even Dell Technologies has a chief customer officer. Mm. So I think it is a very common role today. And I think the distinction today between what we would traditionally call chief revenue officer and chief customer officer is blurring. And I think you're going to see those lines continue to blur over time. And I would even argue that from company to company, those lines may be very different. And another question that I have, again, maybe a weird one, but your revenue targets were almost 10x what they are today at Dell. A lot of sales leaders measure responsibility and new challenges within the scope of the amount of revenue that they typically have in their purview. So I just love to hear about your thought process around what responsibility means now, how it's a different type of challenge instead of just revenue and scope of revenue. I think it's a great question. And I do agree with you. I think for most salespeople, the scoreboard is their quota and how far past their quota they've achieved. So a couple of things, I have lived in that world, I can appreciate it and I understand it, but it's never something that actually drove me. My passion was more about the impact I could have on the overall business and the overall company. And so when I look at you know the $14 billion in revenue that I might've contributed to Dell, it was not insignificant, but it's still the way that it was structured, the way that we did it, and a lot of it being you know in a specialty sales overlay capacity, wasn't going to necessarily change the trajectory of the company or be able to impact the strategic vision. So the relevancy and the ability to drive relevancy and deliver business value to our customers is significant. It's just the tip of the iceberg. We're just starting to get going in this digital market, this cloud adoption, and there's a massive runway here. The observability market is very new and immature, and there's 
a lot of companies jumping in that space and there's going to be a leader or two leaders and we have an opportunity to be one of them for sure. But then for me personally, it's the impact that I can have. It's managing our entire customer revenue and the customer intimacy around that revenue, how we engage. And I love that. I also get to have a seat at the table with incredible leaders on our executive team. And that for me is exciting because we get to learn from each other. We're highly collaborative and we're all on the same mission. And Juven, when you work for a large company, you've got a lot of silos. You've got a lot of political ambitions that drive decisions versus missions that drive decisions. And I wanted to leave all that behind. I wanted to get to a place with one mission, with one team that was all pointed in the same direction and see what we could do together. So it's funny, when I joined Kleiner, it was about nine months ago, my role was very, very open-ended. And Kleiner has a brand, it's an institution, and we're very excited to kind of get back to our roots. That was exciting for me. I wanted to be a part of that journey. And I think that excitement, as soon as I started, lent itself to action-oriented things. I wanted to go do things as fast as I could. And the partnership, I think, felt that very quickly. In fact, even in my interviews, they said that the number one thing that you're going to struggle with is that you're a doer. You're going to feel like you need to do as soon as you start. Do not do that. Do the opposite of that. Because the worst thing that you can do when you join is go down the wrong rabbit holes. Do you feel that? Like, do you get that urge? I'm not sure I could say it better myself. Do I get the urge every day is really the question. (laughs) Yes. In the very last conversation I had with Mike Christensen over dinner at Boulevard, which someday I hope to be able to go to again, I told Mike, as we were kind of getting close to getting this deal done, I said, Mike, there's just one thing I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you to purposely slow me down because I want to get going today. I see the opportunity. I'm so excited about it. You're going to need to pace me so I don't move too quickly and make mistakes. I need to apply my own logic of seek to understand and take my 90 days to really embrace the culture, the opportunity, the market, the challenges, the people, and all those things so I can make informed, intelligent decisions. But it took hold, but not like I'd like it to. I got in and and exactly as you said, I, I wanted to do. And we've made a lot of big changes from a focus perspective, but I still feel like I'm on the treadmill, almost running in place. I want to go farther. I want to go faster. And I want it done yesterday. And I'm balancing that between trying to still be the new guy and pushing this organization to a place where I don't want to break them. I want them to come along on the journey with me, right? That's the critical thing. So I've got to take the time to make sure that I'm being overly communicative, explaining why we're doing the things we're doing, getting folks to buy into the vision, and most importantly, providing input to the vision. Because again, I'm still new. So I want to make sure the things I'm hearing and seeing are the right things. And that as I change this shit from going this way to this way, that everybody says, yes, that's actually the way we should have been going. We're glad you're doing it. We needed to do that. Let's go. And everyone starts rolling in that direction. So I'm spending a ton of time on that. I do feel like we've gotten to a point in the last four months where I know directionally where we need to go. I've got everybody rowing in that direction now. And I don't feel like, at least they're not coming up to me and saying I'm a dissenter. I feel like everybody's kind of grabbed an oar at this point, which feels phenomenal. It really does. But I completely embrace what you said, which is it's still not fast enough. I still want to move faster. Yeah. How long do you think it takes? Again, in sales, you have a ramp period. Nine to 12 months is usually how long it takes for a sales rep to ramp into a territory. For you, when do you think 
you have a fully burdened quota. You are fully ramped. Like, when do you think you feel confident in a new role? And I don't even necessarily think it has to be in a new company, just in a new role. When would you say I have ramped into this role? How long? I would say that, and I've had a lot of different large roles in my career, and this one included, I would say at the three-month marker, you're feeling pretty ramped and feeling like you're almost there. And then at the six-month marker, you look back at that three-month marker and go, you weren't quite as far as you thought, but now you're there, right? So I'm in the three-month marker where I'm feeling like my legs are really solid underneath me. I have a good grounding and I know what I want to do. But I can guarantee you at the six-month marker, if I look back, I'd probably laugh at myself today thinking about how much I didn't know. And at six months, you're really cooking with gas. I think at that point, it's not just my own personal expectation. I'm sure it's the company's expectation that I'm full throttle by six months. So I feel like it's somewhere in that three to six month range where something happens, you wake up one day and that flip switches and it's go time. Not that we're not moving pretty quick now, but I I think that's the difference. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. You come from a world where things are, call it top down sales for the most part. And New Relic's business is the inverse of that. It's a completely bottoms up developer centric motion. And so there's a quote that I'll read, our model works like many freemium models, like say Dropbox, you try us, 80% of you will never buy from us, but 20% will, and we make money on that math. Talk about all the changes that you're going through. I have to imagine that's one of the most fundamental foundational things that you have to adjust to. How do you even think about that in terms of the strategy that you take and how that might differ from what you've had to do before? It's a great question. And I would argue that There's truth in what you just read, but there's also some reality in what happens on a day-to-day business because we are maturing as a sales organization. We have segmented our sales force to look at our key accounts and our enterprise customers and our commercial customers and then down to SMB. And we've reoriented around that. So there is a segmentation model and a territory model that aligns to something that's not just focused on get any company at any cost because eventually some of them, 20% of them will convert. I think what we've done a good job here at New Relic in realizing is we've created an opportunity for any company that has a developer to take advantage of New Relic, whether they're a free customer or whether they're the largest customer on the planet with 3,000 users, all of them can derive value from observability. And the vision for the company, the vision that Lou has, our CEO, that Bill has, our chief product officer, and that we all share in is that we should make it available to every company and give them the opportunity to leverage observability in a way that folks didn't think possible. And we're really excited about that. We want to get back to our roots and attract the developers and the practitioners. So all that's very real. But all that said, we're also very realistic about the different personas in an environment, the criticality of making sure those different personas understand the value of New Relic. And we have a big emphasis as a company around value selling and making sure that it's not just every developer or a company with a developer, but in the larger accounts, as you move into commercial and enterprise, what is the value? What's the connective tissue that our platform provides to the value of the business? How do we help them make money? How do we help them save money? How do we help them reduce risk? And it may sound kind of silly to talk about a performance monitoring tool in the context of helping a company make money, save money, or reduce risk. But I think that's the big change here. We don't consider ourselves a performance monitoring tool anymore. So if the world's listening, please pay attention to me right now. We, we have literally changed the company, right? We are and truly are creating a new market around observability. We've thrown away all the old SKUs that you could buy from. We don't even have an APM SKU, which is what this company made its name on. 
right? We really are about creating a platform that allows all customers to derive value. And because of that, we're putting a much higher price tag on that value conversation at the VP level, at the CXO level, at the business level, and drawing those correlations. So while I do think it's going to be exciting to see over the next three to six to 12 months, all of these developers and practitioners come to the platform and see what they can do with it, we're not losing sight on the fact we need to connect that to value and make sure it goes full circle so that when you take a company from free with five users to 10 users to 50 users to 100 users to 1,000 users, and then somebody wakes up and says, my new Relic bill went from free to what? There's really no challenge because we've connected the dots between the business value and what we're delivering to that company to deliver on their outcomes. So the three things you mentioned, make money, save money, reduce risk as quantifiable measures of value. So I've been in security. That's the world that I come from. And so what we do in security is typically primarily around bucket three, reducing risk. It is really hard to quantify the risk that we are reducing. And maybe that's just for me because I don't have a Jay Snyder in my organization or that I'm not Jay. Is there any actionable tips that you have for a sales rep without a full CS team around them to be able to do one or two things to quantify value? And maybe that answer is different based on what value they want to quantify. I think the answer is different based on the value they want to quantify. But the answer overall to the question you're asking is absolutely. In fact, we're doing it now. In fact, I came this morning from a video call with 120 participants in our executive sponsor program where I'm training and we're training every one of our executive sponsors on how to have a value conversation. And it's all about the different categories by which New Relic can deliver value, right? It's operational agility, it's operational efficiency, it's productivity gains, and it is risk reduction. And it's the, you know, it's the make money, save money, reduce risk. And what we're able to do is double click into each of those four buckets. And you can do this with every sales rep and say, here's the traditional use cases that the company is going to need to develop or operationalize to drive making money or saving money or reducing risk. And then the next click goes, here's how New Relic provides value or directionally provides technology to enable the metrics that drive that use case. And it's not a squiggly line, right? There's no breadcrumbs required to figure out where the business value is from the business to New Relic. It's literally a three click away. We do these six actions. It delivers this metric. This metric provides this outcome and this outcome delivers this business value. And we've created a scorecard around that that any sales rep can use anytime. In fact, we're mandating it across every one of our sales teams to use in every quarterly business review we do with our customers. So we're changing the conversation from a tool-based conversation to a value-based conversation. I'm not gonna say we're gonna get there overnight. Don't mistake me, because it's a big shift in how we sell, but it's the right shift and it's one that we're gonna drive forward on. So to the point you made, it's hard. Risk is a hard category, right? People look at risk as insurance and people don't like to pay for insurance. It's like disaster recovery, right? I'm sure you fought this all the time when you're selling security. But there is security today in being in an old data center and having assets that are getting aged. And if you can help a company move from their aged data center to the cloud in three months versus three years, that's a pretty big value statement that not only drives costs, but can dramatically change the risk profile of that customer. Potentially even help them make money because once they're in the cloud, their routes to market to new business opportunities greatly expands. So there's a way to connect these dots that we've developed that I think is pretty cool. So we have a value engineering team that drives this. That's awesome. What does a good customer success manager look like? And what I mean by that is, are the qualities 
of what makes a good AE the same as what makes a good CSM? Educate me. Pretend I don't know anything about what makes a good customer success manager. So I will tell you that a great customer success manager, so for starters, she's an incredible listener. So really understanding what the customer is trying to achieve. She's bold at being able to ask questions that it's the getting back to the first conversation we had about asking why five times. Okay, so you said you need to go do this, but why? Really getting to the heart through discovery and being comfortable with discovery questions around being able to understand why the IT organization is trying to do something. It starts at the business, right? The business has three objectives. Those three objectives are going to put pressure on IT to go do a series of things to enable the business. Our job as a CSM is to figure out how those things connect. How's IT lined up to the business? Then my job is to create a success plan that says, if the IT imperatives to enable the business are this, how can New Relic impact those things? and understand the action plan against that and then hold the team accountable for that. So a great success manager, she's very good at consultative selling and asking the right questions. They're an exceptional program manager. And this is where I think you see a divergence from a typical AE at managing the tasks and activities that need to occur in that success plan to ensure we deliver value. They're a resource manager because they can't do all the work. So they've got to be able to look out and determine based on where we need to take this customer, do I use internal resources? Who's the best third-party partner to engage with to enable this? What's some additional enablement I need to provide this customer so they can do the work themselves? And what does that enablement plan look like? So they're thinking about their resource pool. I mean, it's a different resource pool than an AE might think about. An AE is thinking about who's the best person to help me close the deal really strong pre-sales person, a senior executive. The CSM's thinking about how do I go build a customer for life? How do I make sure that they move through a maturity curve, that they're getting more adoption, they're getting better leverage and better utilization out of the platform, which delivers more business value. They also have to be business savvy because once you get to X, you can't stop. You've got to think, what are the next set of operational use cases we want to light up to continue to deliver more business value to this customer? It's not enough to get to the goal line. We've got to keep going. It's an evergreen process. So I think the CSM is, I'd say, less salesy, more program management driven, more consultative in those respects. But I think those are the key attributes that I see them needing to have to be really successful. And obviously, executive presence is critical because they're going to drive the back end engagement with all the executives we engage with. Yep. And even hearing you talk about this, uh, triggers a thought for me. I listened to you on a Saster panel that was moderated by the CEO of Gainsight, Nick, and something you mentioned there that I jotted down, and maybe the flip side of this coin of what's the difference between the two? I'd love to hear what you think the similarities are. You said there's an interesting evolution of how pre-sales works with post-sales to create a connective tissue. And it almost felt like you suggested that maybe those two at some point turn into one. So I just love your, I don't know, maybe additional thoughts there. Yeah. And I think you may see this evolution over time. So again, I'm new to the SaaS world and new to this whole CS thing. But if I look at this and I've run pre-sales orgs in my previous life, pre-sales folks have a tendency to build incredible relationships with the customer, especially when you're dealing with a technical product, right? They're the early ones in, they're building that Vulcan mind meld with the customer. They're understanding how and where the, the technology is going to be deployed. If you're that customer and you build that relationship with that pre-sales person, 
and then they disappear the day you sign the deal. And now you've got to go build a relationship with another technical person. Does it feel like that's a bait and switch in some way? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But what kind of momentum have you lost because of that? What gets lost in translation? So from where I sit, it's critical that you almost lose the nomenclature of pre and post sales on the technology track. It's just a continuum. We're engaging with the customer early to understand technically what they need to achieve and why. We're understanding their architecture and where we can fit and how we can deliver value. And then once we sign the deal, we now go execute against the conversations we had. So either you've got to define a really crisp model where there's a clear handoff and a set of deliverables from pre-sales to somebody in post-sales that's also incredibly technical that can actually help do that work and engage and drive that adoption or all that's lost, right? All that gets lost. And ultimately what you have is then two things. You either have an unhappy customer or you have a customer that's never realizing the true value of what they thought they could at the onset of that sales campaign. So I do see a world where these lines are blurring. I don't have a model in my head yet on exactly what it will look like, but we're actually thinking about it right now and what those things can and should look like to drive efficiencies. And I don't want to say optimize as a means to reduce, but I think of optimize as a means to simplify. So this to me falls in the simplification category. How do we make it simpler for us to engage with our customers and for them to engage with us? And again, if I have to have two or three different points of technology contact to do what it could be done by one person, it's simpler to do with one person. Mm, yeah, I agree. And on this topic of simplifying, one of the things that I asked one of my first guests, Bob Fratty, who's the CRO of Slack, I said, look, as you go through this meteoric growth, and I read him some quote, but basically the, the essence of the quote is that scaling is a process of removing, not adding. Often people think that as you scale, you need to just throw more things at it, more people, more process, more everything. And New Relic, just from the outside looking in, has tried to do the opposite, at least from a product orientation. So you mentioned earlier, you've reduced the SKUs. You don't even have one of the foundational SKUs that put the business on your back. So you went from 11 SKUs to three. You did a pricing change from a consumption model. So everything has just kind of changed about the way that you scale. And I say change in the sense that it's simplified. Do you think about it in a similar way as kind of some of the stuff that you're talking about earlier? I talk about it all the time with the team. While it feels like we're moving at a pace that's probably superhuman right now inside the company, it's in an effort to create a better customer experience. And that starts with simplification. Simpler to engage with, simpler to consume, simpler to get value out of. And then we need to do the same thing inside because I agree with what you said. When we need to scale, it's not about adding things. It's about knocking down internal silos within our company creating new organizational models that are easier to engage with, more effective, more agile, more efficient. It's maybe losing sight of some of the, I don't want to call them sins of the past. It's just the traditional way of doing business. I mean, we just talked about one with hard lines between pre and post sales. Why does it have to be that way? Why not reimagine the way that we engage with the customer starting from scratch and think of a simpler way to do it? And what's that look like? Is it a dedicated model or is it a team model? I'm just throwing ideas out there, but you know, just because it's always been done one way, the world's changed. The expectations have changed. The technology is different. The use cases are different. And I think we've got to design differently, again, from the customer back, making it as simple as possible. And through optimization, in my mind, it is getting simpler. It's getting a simpler model. It's collapsing down silos. It's aggregating like resources, which eliminates friction. It's all of those things wrapped into one that just becomes a simpler engagement model for our customers. 
I got to ask you a random question, but hearing you say this, it's clear how much change you guys want to do and you want to do. And when you come in, I think sometimes imposing change can be scary. And I say that mainly because you could fail, you could do it wrong. And whatever the business is doing has gotten to a pretty good point till now. How do you, and again, through the lens of, as you take on a new challenge and opportunity, that's very different for you, right? Like you said, you don't come from a SaaS world. You don't come from a bottoms up enterprise motion. You're gonna have to try things that are different. What's your mindset towards failing? Are you scared of it? How do you communicate and you know give people permission to feel like that's okay? How do you give yourself the permission to feel like that's okay? Yeah, I don't know if I've given myself permission. I wish I could. So some people are driven by winning. Some people are driven by fear of failure. I am 100% in the latter category. I am driven completely by fear of failure. It haunts me, right? So even winning the big deals, I mean, I remember knocking down $100 million deals and it felt okay, but what doesn't feel okay is losing, right? That fear of failure. So what do I do? Well, I talk about spending the 90 days, which I haven't always had the time to do. So trying to do the measure twice, cut once here as quickly as I can to make sure the decisions, getting a lot of input from a lot of people, a lot of cross-functional people. I think one of the biggest things I've done is, at least it feels to me, is I brought people together from all over the company on some of the key decisions I wanted to make. And I'm the new guy, but I'm on these video chats with 15, 18 people that I've selected cross-functionally because I think I need all these different points of light for input to make the decisions. Half the people don't know each other. And they've been at the company three or four years and it's only 2,300 people. So that to me says, A, we have too many silos, but B, I'm onto something here because they're all contributing, they're all feeling it, and now they want more of it. And we've done this on multiple occasions with some of the big decisions I've had to drive. And I'm not asking for permission. I'm not even leading the witness. I'm saying, this is the topic area I want to discuss. These are the key things we need to get on the table. I take all the data from the cross-functional team, and then we make the decision and go. So in those types of cases, I feel good because while it may be faster than I would have liked to go, the opportunity to fail is more limited because I have such a cross-functional team of what I'll call experts weighing in on what we think we need to do. They're not all in agreement, but the good news is the thing I told the team is it's okay to fail fast, but not slowly. So we are making some of these decisions and we're moving quickly and we quickly realize if we're going down a path and it's not going to work, we stop right? I'm not going to go down a path for two years and wait for success to fall on my head, right? So we, we're definitely getting the mindset of failing fast is okay. Prefer not to fail at all, but that's what we're doing. I mean, we're just, we're bringing the teams together. We're getting good buying and commitment and then folks are committed to it. So I feel pretty good. It's a democratic process, I guess, if you want to know. Jay Snyder for president. That's a great place to end it. I really appreciate your time. I always wrap with two questions. The first, what does the word grit mean to you and how do you or your teams apply it? Grit. I like the word grit because it exemplifies the one thing that I, I talk to my leaders about. It exemplifies an attitude, right? When you think about grit, you think about an attitude. It's kind of a strength of character. And I'm a guy, I'm five foot three, right? So I don't come in the room and command presence. And, you know, you're born with a set of limitations physically from an aptitude perspective, all kinds of things. You know, you're either God given talent or challenged in a variety of areas. But there's one thing one thing that is yours and yours alone. And that is your attitude. So own it. So grit to me is all about the one thing that you control solely, and that is your attitude. So bring it every freaking day. 
right? And bring the best attitude you can. doesn't mean you're going to put on a happy face for the sake of putting on a happy face, but you're going to have the right attitude to inspire and lead. You're going to be uh, enthusiastic when the organization needs it because enthusiasm is contagious. So it starts with me. I'm the leader of the team. So I should be the most enthusiastic. And um, you're going to bring the right attitude when things are tough and you're going to be sincere and you're going to be transparent and you're going to drive that. And to me, grit is just that. It's having the right attitude at all time. That's back ended by one very simple saying, which is never, ever, never, ever give up. And if you, especially for a guy who's got a fear of failure, if you combine the right attitude with the never, ever, never, ever give up saying, I think you're in a pretty good place. Jay, thank you for your time. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's great. UiPath and Jay are hiring like crazy. So if you want to get a hold of them, reach out, j.schneider at uipath.com. Thank you folks for tuning in to learn from our amazing guest and for indulging me as the rambling host. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to get in touch or keep up with the pod, please follow me on Twitter at Jubin Mir or shoot us an email, gtmg at kleinerperkins.com. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, please support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Thank you, and I will see you next time.